Hello, friends. Welcome once again to the Perfect Bound Podcast. This is a podcast all about anything and everything comic books and comics related. Brought to you by the panel jumper. My name is Ben. With me, as always, is Cole Hornaday. How are you, Cole? Hey, I'm doing great, Ben Lawrence. And our guest today is Matthew Southworth. Thanks for joining us, Matthew. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Cole, I'm going to pass it off to you to tell our audience all about Matthew. We'll do that right now. So Matt Southworth is a comic artist living in Seattle, Washington. Um, and I just started reading the wrong one. <laughs> Originally from, I'm looking at old notes. Originally from Nashville, Tennessee, Matthew Southworth is a musician, a playwright, filmmaker, and cartoonist residing here in Seattle, Washington. Upon receiving his master's in playwriting and directing for, and from Carnegie Mellon University, he worked at Paramount Pictures for Tom Cruise's company, Cruise Wagner, and then moved on to freelance development work for uh, film companies, including Warner Brothers, Touchstone, MGM, Paramount, Mount, Broder, Curlin, Webb, Ufner, and others. As a screenwriter, uh, he was an uncredited writer on the film Suspect Zero, featuring Aaron Eckert and Ben Kingsley, and wrote and directed an independent feature film called Big Wide Empty, based on his own play. Uh, he's a former lead guitarist for the band The Capillaries, uh, which at one time or another featured many notable uh, Seattle musicians, including Aaron Hoffman, who tragically passed away in 2016 at the age of 43, and Rob Knopf of Harvey Danger, Eric Corson of The Long Winters, and John Auer of The Posies. Southworth also briefly played uh, second guitar in Harvey Danger and performed as the guitarist in Harvey Danger singer Sean Nelson's band, Sean Nelson and His Mortal Enemies. Man, that was a mouthful. <laughs> his first public comics work uh, was a short piece in Eric Larson's Savage Dragon, followed by three issues of Infinity, Inc. Uh, those issues uh, also contain short backup pieces penciled by Southworth, inked by our good friend and neighbor, um, Stefano Gaudiano, who Southworth has occasionally assisted on projects like Daredevil and the Sensational Sensational Spider-Man. Matthew is probably best known for uh, co-creating the Portland-based detective series Stumptown with writer Greg Rucka and was executive producer for the 2019 ABC series adaptation starring Kobe Smulders. And last summer, he began collaboration with a best-selling author, Garth Stein, on a new graphic novel series from Fanagraphics called The Cloven, about a genetically designed human-goat hybrid community secretly living among Seattle's homeless. Man, when do you sleep? I was just <laughs> going to say... <laughs> I'm, I'm most of 2020. Uh, 2020 has been an uncharacteristically uh, unproductive year. Oh. Matt, you yeah. have a hell of a CV. Have you ever thought about just picking one thing? <laughs> it's all a matter of perspective. On the one hand, you could say, wow, that guy really does know how to do a lot of stuff. Or you could say, man, that guy sure has failed in a lot of arenas. <laughs> Uh, and depending on whether it's, you know, what part of 2020 we're in, I'm, I'm on either side of that argument, you know? Right. There. Well, before uh, we, before we get into, um, your comic book work, I want to briefly touch on your, your, um, uh, Seattle music scene, um, bona fides, because sure. I recognize a lot of names in there. And um, yeah, like what, like uh, how did you get started? Uh, you're a musician, you came to Seattle, you formed a band when you got here. Did you come here with a band? How did the Capillaries get started? I, I came here with, uh, with a band in the sense that I had a band, the Capillaries in LA when I lived in LA. Um, 
but nobody moved to Seattle with me. So I sort of carried the band uh-huh. idea with me, the songs I had written and, and so forth. I was the singer, songwriter, guitar player in the band. Um, but, you know, my, my drummer from L.A., Dan Fyden, is a video game director. Um, uh, we, I, over the course of the, the time that the band was together, we had 19 members, uh, even though a lot of that time we were a three piece. So that tells you something about what it's like to work with me, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so how I got started, I mean, I've, I, I had bands when I was a little kid before I even knew how to play guitar. Um, but I had a guitar and we would write songs when I was six or seven years old, where we just sort of like go like that to it. Yeah. And I mean, it makes a sound like that's playing guitar. Right. (laughs) Um, and we wrote, I, I wrote a song called life on the road, which was about being a traveling musician. Uh, the chorus of which was life on the road is not for a woman. So on with the show and I'll keep on drumming. Um, I was a a sexist, (laughs) a world weary sexist at seven years old. Uh, (laughs) uh, At least you're able to admit that today. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm reformed now. Um, I'm no longer seven years old. Uh, So, yeah. So I started playing guitar when I was 13 and um, that's kind of all I did for several years. And then when I, got involved with theater, I sort of, I didn't drop guitar, but I stopped fixating on it. Mm -hmm. And I took my guitar with me when I went to college. I went to college in Bowling Green, Kentucky, which is just north of Nashville. And uh, didn't really play while I was there. Uh, Being a theater student, at least the way I was doing it, was totally all-consuming. I was in a children's theater program that toured to local schools at like 6 30 in the morning and then you know i'd have classes during the day then we'd have rehearsal at night then we'd usually four days a week have a party and then fall asleep at three o'clock and then get up at 6 30 so like guitar just kind of disappeared for me anyway this is a, a condensed biography that sort of answers your question. Yeah, yeah. Um, universalizing some dues paying that I, I think that, that all three of us here can can relate to. <laughs> yeah, Especially yeah. So then I, you know, I finished uh, or I went on to to go to grad school and do all that stuff and uh, moved to LA. Was in the film business, burned out on the film business, and as I was sort of burning out and uh, breaking up with a girlfriend, I started writing songs for the first time as an adult, really. And then as I sort of shed movie Matt, uh, I became music Matt again and moved to Seattle not too long afterwards, which then turned into comics Matt. (laughs) So before we go into talking about comics, I'm sorry, Ben, did you have? No, I was just gonna talk about the confluence between French theater and music here in Seattle. Go for it. it. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, Cole and I we're we're deeply entrenched in the French theater scene. So a lot of the names on the on that list, like like Sean Nelson was, you know, part of the you know the theater scene here. We know him. Um, Rob Knopf of uh, was a um, 
he worked at Seattle Rep. He also owned yeah. some houses with uh, a good friend of mine. So I know Rob. And I once bought a keyboard at American Music that the dude claimed was once owned by John Auer. It wouldn't surprise <laughs> me. Yeah, John, uh, it, it's a little misleading on the on the bio to say John was in the capillaries. He was he was. He was kind of in the capillaries. I was kind of in his solo band briefly. We used to share a studio, like a practice space slash recording studio, and we're really close for a while. Um, so we would just kind of play in each other's bands. And there was a at least one show where where we played and we didn't have a bass player. So John was our bass player for a little while. And uh, I remember I played bass for him at this weird outdoor show over by the Fremont bridge. Um, but, uh, Sean Nelson is actually how I wound up coming to Seattle in the first place. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I knew Sean in Nashville. We actually met doing theater. Um, we were in a Neil Simon play together, uh, right as I guess it was the summer before I went to college, I think. Um, and Sean is, couple of years younger than I am um, but he, he the circumstances were strange for him in that his parents lived in Nashville um, and therefore he lived there but he went to boarding school in Alexandria Virginia so he didn't really have any Nashville friends so uh, through that play I and this guy Adam became kind of Sean's only friends in Nashville for a little while <laughs> so I lost touch with him when I went off to school and then one day I was flipping channels and I heard this, I'm not sick, but I'm not well. Yeah. And the way he said his L's is the way I say my L's. And I was like, that <laughs> sounds like Sean Nelson. And then his face popped up and I couldn't believe it, you know? So, uh, and it's funny that we happen to be talking about Aaron Huffman, who, as you mentioned, died a few years ago. Uh, but at his uh, memorial, um, there were these shirts, and I happened to be wearing yeah. Aaron, right? I'm wearing Aaron. I noticed that. It's good. Yeah. That's awesome. So. Yeah, it's a, we probably, you know, we could, I'm sure we could get into it, but we won't. We probably know a lot of the same people, uh, I bet, interestingly yeah. enough, it's just because the strange way those two worlds collide in this town. But... Um, yeah, Cole. Do you have? A, do you want to move this forward? Sure. Well, I, 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 I got to admit, you tickled my my imagination, um, Matt, when you said, "Well, I got a story about um, Suspect Zero, which uh, was the film that you did. Did you do a little script doctoring on that film? Is that what happened? Well, it was uh, it was an interesting situation. So, I I was basically an intern at Cruz Wagner. Uh, Paula Wagner had gone to Carnegie Mellon uh, as a theater student. And so they were looking for someone to come from there. Excuse me. Which is actually how I wound up going to Hollywood without finishing my grad degree, which I still technically don't have. Okay. I wanted I, from the, I had from actually the gotten language. into <laughs> I had gotten into grad school without finishing my undergrad degree. Wow. So I've I've got the world's weirdest thing like <laughs> short long story short or short story long I was working at Actors Theater of Louisville in the literary department as 
a, a development assistant intern. And I've been doing that for a while. And I and a couple of people applied for a grant for people working on new plays because Actors Theater has the national new new play contest. Right. We used to. Um, and the Humana Festival. We were granted the grant. And on my resume, I had written that I'd written these plays. Well, they were 10-minute plays. In other words, 10-page plays, basically. Um, and the one of the people on the the board that gave out the William T. Gardner grant, that's what it was called, contacted me and said, would you be interested in going to playwriting school at Carnegie Mellon? Mm. And I said, well, uh, that's that's very flattering, but you've you've never read anything I've written. And he said, well, I, I have a sense about people. This man's mm. name was Arthur Jerome, wonderful guy. And uh, I said, well, okay. And then he goes, so what would you think? And I said, well, well, the first thing is I've never really written a full length play. And he said, well, I, I've got a sense about people. And I go, okay. And, and then I go, but I've also, uh, I've also not finished my undergrad school. And he goes, well, what if that wasn't a problem? <laughs> and I said, and I don't really have any money. And he goes, well, what if that wasn't a problem? And it turned out it kind of none of these things were kind of a problem until later. Mm -hmm. Student loan debt gets you. Yep. <laughs> but uh, but I've made so little money most of my life. Even that wasn't really a problem. Um, so flash forward to I'm working at Cruz Wagner. And uh, during that time and probably still now, I would say my favorite film is Taxi Driver. Uh, so I've always liked uh, intense kind of character things, kind of dark things. Um, Taxi Driver, when I first saw it, was the movie that made it click for me why there couldn't really be Batman. Because um, I was like, oh, because he'd be like that. <laughs> Everybody talks about how Joker is basically a Taxi Driver ripoff, but Taxi Driver is basically what Batman would be just with money. He'd be psychotic, you know, like ridiculous. Anyway, yep. uh, so Suspect Zero. We're working on Suspect Zero. <laughs> it's gone through a gazillion drafts at this point. It's not congealing. And I'm reading them and I'm going, I know what's wrong with this thing. It's got too many characters. They, they, they duplicate functions, blah, blah, blah. And Nicholas, the development guy, goes, why don't you write it? Because we're between writers at this point. And I say, yeah, all right, I'll write it. And so he gets me a copy of Final Draft. It's the first uh, screenwriting software I had. And I start writing it. And I'm, it's like, it's working. It's, it's really working. But just before that, I had said, you know who we ought to get is Paul Schrader who wrote Taxi Driver, <laughs> great scripts. <laughs> Nicholas says to me, Paul Schrader's washed up. You write it. I'm like, all right. <laughs> so I'm writing and I'm writing and I'm writing and it's going great. And I'm excited because I don't have to drive in LA. Like I'm, a, I'm forced, I'm able to stay home, saving tons of time. I'm writing. I found this cool way to kind of introduce like the, the eureka moment mm -hmm. uh 
And then Nicholas calls me. He says, look, uh, you're going to have to come back to work. We got a, We got a writer. I'm like, oh, man, it was here's my big moment. I didn't even get to finish my draft. Who is it? It's Paul Schrader. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, come on. <laughs> you know, I get it's like I introduced my wife to the guy she leaves me for or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, the film was wow. not a particular success, but, you know, that's yeah. not really the point. So you, but you've always been, um, I'm, I'm assuming that you, uh, amidst all of your other creative uh, uh, drives, you've always been a doodler. You've always been, uh, you've always been a cartoonist. You've always been drawing at some point or another. So in uh, amidst all of these other creative drives and forces that are, are buffeting you, you managed to um, focus on drawing comic books. Um, how did that filter out? How did that filter well, out? You got to Seattle weirdly it much like how i kind of wound up coming to seattle because of knowing sean mm -hmm. and uh, it wasn't like sean said move to seattle and have a band and i'll introduce you into the community it was just more like i can't live in la anymore i know this guy sean nelson mm -hmm. i move here and like now we have mutual friends they go oh i know sean nelson you know um when i was kind of finishing up my time in LA or it was finishing me up as the case may be. Um, That's not an uncommon story. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was a very exhausting period. It was my late twenties and I was having my first midlife crisis. Um, and I had grown up with this guy that we made comics together as, as kids. Uh, we also had bands together. Same, same guy. I, I've been drawing, or I started drawing when I was three. And for the most part, he would write and I would draw. And actually during our teenage, like uh, high school years, we were we would literally work in a closet together. We, we set up like a little studio in this space under the stairs in my mom's house. Um, so we were closeted teenagers um, <laughs> while everybody else was out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, enjoying the fruits of their youth. Uh, we were working. Well, that guy was Joe Casey, um, the writer. So as I was kind of burning out in LA, I would sort of watch Joe, you know, like you write a screenplay, maybe somebody reads it if you're lucky they read it and they like it if you're really lucky they read it and they like it and it gets optioned so you get a little money if you're really lucky after that it actually gets purchased and if you're lucky after that it gets greenlit and if you're lucky after that if you're lucky they fire you from your own thing and rewrite it and if you're lucky it gets made and it gets released and maybe it's good and maybe it's not, but there's all this like, if, 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 if. And I would look over at Joe and he'd write a thing and three months later it was out. Right. And I was like, that's what I want to do. So uh, what's weird is that he just sort of gently directed me towards writing or towards drawing instead of towards writing. Um because I hadn't really done a whole lot of drawing in my twenties. Mm. I was mostly writing. Uh, I mean, I went to school to write, you know, and direct. Um, so anyway, that's kind of what happened is I started making 
this independent comic called Unbelievable Girl that I never really finished, never did much with. And I sort of kept sort of poking around things. I was an apartment manager in Lake City at the time, or Lake Forest Park, excuse me. Um, so I had lots of free time to work and I could draw and I could write songs and I could do all that stuff. And it just sort of started to coalesce when I started working with Stefano and, you know, aping him to, to be his assistant taught me a bunch of skills that I needed to just kind of tighten screws a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, and it was the same kind of thing. Actually, it is sort of a who you know deal in the sense that I would be working with Stefano. He'd be buried under a pile of work. He'd say, why don't you not just assist on these six pages? Why don't you ink those? Mm -hmm. And then I would get paid to ink them and they would be printed as though I inked them, but he would actually go back and kind of fix a lot of stuff. Gotcha. Um, and very kindly never say anything about it to me. <laughs> it, it was like he was sort of, you know, like, I'm like, Dad, I'm going to build a car. And he's like, you go, son. And then while, you know, while I sleep, he's out there putting actual brakes on it or something. Yeah. <laughs> we had a really great time with him. We, we were really fortunate to have him join us on the, the Panel Jumper Live cabaret show where he did. Uh -huh. um, he was one of our, 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 our guests. And uh he um, he walked us through the inking process of uh, The Walking Dead, which I think for damn near everybody in the audience was a revelation how he does it. And he's so he's so freaking humble. He's like, but I'm really just a tracer. Other people mm -hmm. and he would pop off and he would name names like these people are ink inkers. They bring something to it. My goal is to never. Is, is, is that people don't even notice I've been there, that I've been in the room. And, um, you know, it's that's. I don't know. I have followed his, I was pretty mindful of following his work thereafter. And I'm not going mm -hmm. to, uh, I'm not going to agree with him. I think his, 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 he enhances yeah. people's work tremendously, but, um, and to, to, to just describe himself as a tracer is I'm not buying that for a second, but <laughs> yeah, I, I agree completely. Yeah. He's, he's, his work, the, the interesting thing about Stefano's work to me is it's, he very strongly asserts his personality but it's not overwhelming. Uh, and that sounds like just a nice thing to say, but it's really true in his case. He's, he's somehow able to strengthen what's cool about the work to fix the stuff that's a little wonky and to give it a sense of mood that a lot of pencilers just don't really do. When you compare like what he, what Michael Lark did on his own, mm -hmm. all of which is fine. And a lot of Stefano's technique came from essentially aping what Michael was doing but th there's a very distinct difference between the two you know and michael's work is cleaner and um it's less uh it's less emotional somehow there's something emotional about what stefano mm -hmm. brings to it in my opinion right and manifest destiny as well um just like a just a crazy freaking series i loved his work on that too so yeah. tell us how you got connected with um we need to talk about stump town because <laughs> tell us how you got connected with with uh, uh greg rucka master of of uh of comic book uh, noir detective stories uh that defy expectation and yet still give us what we need where detective stories are concerned how'd you get hooked up with him and what was the genesis of of developing stump town 
Well, it's actually a great segue. Um, Stefano had worked with Greg on Gotham Central mm-hmm. and with Michael, with Michael Lark. And when Michael left, Stefano drew a few issues. Um, Stefano is perpetually over committed. He's, he's always going, yes, I want to do that. And yes, I want to do that. And I don't have time, but I'll find a way. And, you know, and so he does. And when he was contacted by Greg and James Lucas Jones at Oni, uh, they said, we've got this detective steer series called Stumptown. Uh, we'd like you to draw it. And he said, well, I'll do it if I can do it with my assistant, Matt. And I think the idea was basically he was going to kind of slide me into the business more fully and not just as an assistant. And, you know, and I had done a little bit here and there, the Savage Dragon thing I did by myself. The uh, I inked those three issues of Infinity Incorporated by myself and then penciled the backups, which Stefano inked. So I was, you know, I was ready uh, or ready-ish anyway. So they said, yeah, okay, you and your assistant, Matt, can do it. It sounds great. And he, he inked, I think, two pages of my pencils. <laughs> and it was just very quickly, he just didn't have time. Mm-hmm. And the money, was, the money was terrible. So it was sort of like, I can't, I can't do it. And they were sort of left holding the Matt Southworth bag. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... I don't, they never expressed to me that they were unhappy about it, but I kind of would imagine that if that was, if I had been on their side, I would be a little like, yeah, we didn't ask Matt Southworth. We asked Stefano. Hmm. Um, So I spent the entire first issue and I'm not exaggerating, totally convinced I was about to be fired, Hmm. like Hmm. completely sick to my stomach about it. That's unfortunate because I, um, I did, I'll be frank with you. I did a deep dive. I had not read Stumptown. I've always liked Uh Rooka. Um, but I felt like if if I'm going to sit down and talk with this gentleman with Ben, I need to be, um, uh, better versed or as well versed as possible on his work. Also, it's the pandemic. So I got all the time in the world to like, you know, immerse myself, go all the way to the rivets. So I, I read all the, the entire series. And I also watched the, the TV show. Um, which is not something I, I would have uh, made the time for. But um, I think it's really sad to hear you say that you were that anxious about the initial um, uh, exploration of, of, of Stumptown because I um, uh, immediately got um, uh, Destiny Dreams Paros's character. Um, I was immediately caught up on her, but also the environments. Um, having grown up in Oregon, having you know, grown up in the Willamette Valley and spent a greater part of my lost youth in Portland, in the mean streets of Portland, Oregon, uh, in the eighties, <laughs> I was like in the bridges and the um, and the uh, 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 you know the alleys and the streets. I'm like, this is he's he's got this place. He understands his place. And like all good good noir detectives, storytellers, you made that environment uh, a, a character that stood um, alongside the protagonists and. Um, and, and even more so when we get to Cloven, but I still want to talk about Stumptown. Um, uh, so you only did uh, the two story arcs for Stumptown. Did you get busy with other things or what happened there? Uh, well, mainly what happened is I just couldn't really afford to keep doing it. I, see. Um, I was, I approached doing Stumptown in a 
I've never quite crystallized this before. I've never said this out loud. I've never actually thought it all the way through until now. But I, I did a sort of martyr move hmm. when I got that job, which was I'm going to work harder than I have to. I'm going to I'm going to make this hard so that at the very least, even if I'm terrible at it, you can see the effort. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what could have taken a lot less time, I took so much pride in it and so much challenge in it mm-hmm. that I dragged it out. Um, and in some cases it, it was worth doing. And in some cases it was idiotic. Okay. Um, like I, I spent quite a while building a 3d model of her entire house. Was that right? <laughs> yeah. So that, so that everything was exactly consistent. Um, wow. And, and that was a positive thing. I also spent like several hours, there's a scene where she has gotten hit and she goes home and she takes out a bag of frozen peas and puts mm-hmm. it on her eye, mm-hmm. which of course Greg writes, you know, panel four, she goes in the fridge, takes out frozen peas, gotcha. panel five, she presses them to her. Well, I spent all day designing a bag of frozen peas. I made up a, you know, mm-hmm. like I literally designed the packaging like an idiot, (laughs) you know, but I would do that kind of stuff. So um, by the time the, the second volume had come around, uh, I was no longer on unemployment after being let go from my apartment managing job. So I was just living off of that, uh, off of my comics work, Mm -hmm. which meant because it was an indie comic with a smaller company, the pay rate was so low that I was basically having to take any work that would come my way. Sure. So I'd be offered, you know, an issue of Thunderbolts or Spider-Man, you know, and I'd make $7,000 doing an issue of Spider-Man and I'd make 1500 doing an issue of Stumptown, but Stumptown's what I care about. Right. But I have to do the other job or I'll starve, you know, or I'll, you know, I can't, I literally couldn't pay the rent. I spent most of my adult life with, you know, I'd say even, even over the past year, which is the first time in my life I've had any money, at least 40% of the time that I put my debit card in, I worry that it's going to be rejected. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. um, yeah. Ben so, and I can't relate to that at all. We have the foggiest <laughs> clue what you're talking about. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, so it was basically that, that was the main consideration. Um, the sales of the book were okay on the first volume. Mm -hmm. They were less so on the second volume, which is standard normal. Although I thought the second volume was better than the first one. And the second volume was about a band and a stolen guitar. And those are all my guitars and all my stuff. So I got to draw all my stuff. Okay. And then the third volume was going to be about soccer stadiums full of people. And I was like, "Hmm. yeah, A, I don't like soccer. (laughs) B, I'm going to draw, you know, 10,000 people all the time. And C, I was just going broke. So I had to, I had to look for other work. So that's really why. But then um, ABC picked it up and uh, 
did they uh how do you um how did you come out being uh becoming an executive producer on the show through greg's generosity and uh loyalty um apparently i don't know too much about this we haven't talked all that much about it but apparently over the years there had been offers that greg and his people would turn down mm-hmm. because they would only make him an executive producer so greg and justin and i originally greg and i owned it 50 50 mm-hmm. and then we said well if someone else comes on to draw it that person will buy in with his effort and we never we never really went any further than that. We didn't sign a contract. We didn't do anything. It was just like, here's what we're going to do. Okay. Sounds good to me. And uh, when things came around, we actually had to check back in and go like, what was the deal? What did we say it was going to be? And the thing that was so cool was like, nobody, I mean, depending on how you look at it, I did more work than Justin Mm -hmm. because I created the look of the characters. Yeah. But Greg wrote all, uh, whatever it is, 16 books or whatever, 16 mm-hmm. issues. Uh, so there were all these ways that if you wanted to get, uh, you know, litigious about it or whatever, that you could have like headaches. But we didn't, we never did any of that bullshit. We just went, nah, it's, it's, it's thirds. And so it was thirds. And as part of the, uh, as part of the deal, Greg got us on, all of us on as executive producers, which mm-hmm. meant that we were we were given like a small option fee up front. Then when they purchased it, we were given a larger chunk, not crazy money, but some money. Yeah. And then uh and then we got a fee for producing each episode. So every couple of weeks I would get this relatively substantial check for work I was doing and I never did anything. I never did. I never read a script. I never approved this or that. I didn't do any of that stuff. I just cash checks. Um, well, that's good work cool. if you can get it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know whether to be frustrated with that or pleased because it <laughs> meant, you know, I didn't have any problems but then again, I used to work in the film industry and like, oh, now's my chance, but right. not really. Uh, so it was it was an interesting experience in that sense. So the um, show ran one season, 18 episodes. Um, this was a unique, immersive experience for me. Like I said, I read I read all the books. I read um, your two volumes and I read Justin's uh, two volumes and, and thoroughly enjoyed the series. I've always loved uh, Rooka's writing. I've just I've not always been the best at um, keeping up on detective thrillers. Um, uh, I would, I, I, I'm guilty of leaning more toward the superhero genres, but as I've gotten older, I've gotten so, so bored with that genre. So I'm moving to other things. So to pick up Stumptown after having read about it and heard about it, frankly, for long enough that I, I felt guilty that I had, um, you know, missed out on something really great. And I got caught up in the TV show. The TV show is a very different tone. Um, it's, it doesn't have, obviously it doesn't have the edge that the comic book did, but there were things that I really loved about the, what the actors brought to those characters. And I thought uh, uh, it, it was, um, clearly it was her vehicle, but I thought Kobe Smolders was, was tremendous in the part. And I really enjoyed it. And I was actually very sad to learn that they were unable to renew the series. 
did you spend much time watching the TV series? Did you, um, did you know, uh, which is, which is an interesting thing in itself. Uh, there's the episodes that I saw, I liked, uh, I not only liked, I loved, mm -hmm. which I was shocked about <laughs> because, because uh, I'm very critical. You know, we started this discussion, me complaining about a movie that I saw last night that everybody else loved. Um, uh, so I, you know, and I knew like, this was, I was going to have feelings about this because it's, you know, it's a thing that I spent a lot of time on. Um, so watching the show has been an interesting challenge in that it's, I'm a little afraid every time I watch it. I don't sure. want to see stuff that I don't like. I don't want to mess up my good feeling about it. Gotcha. Um, so it's different than watching something else, you know, just watching whatever, uh, the queen's gambit. Um, but when I went, I went down to the shooting of the pilot, which was as far as I know, the only one that, that we did in Portland. And, uh, you know, I got down there and it was, it was cool. Uh, you know how, like when they're shooting something in a neighborhood, they put up little signs, never has the name of the movie. It, it's always some fake, you know, code name. In this case, taped all over the place was one of my drawings. Hmm. And that was cool. Hmm. And so like, you know, I, I got dropped off like down at the set. I, I'm coming down, you know, like they dropped me off kind of sort of a block away, basically at the perimeter of what was kind of locked off. So I'm, I'm walking, I walk past a little craft services table with the bowls of M&Ms and, uh, and then I come around the corner and they're rehearsing a fight and I look and that's my Dex getting thrown down on the hood of a car. And she looked just like her, hmm. just like who I was trying to draw. Uh, that's great. Which, that was thrilling to me. And then when I met Kobe, I was, I was like, it's great. And she goes, I look just like her, don't I? <laughs> and i and i was like yeah she's like it's like you summoned me i was like i, I know <laughs> you know it was it was really cool uh so all of that was cool you know they changed the car which i initially was kind of crabby about but the reasoning behind it actually made a lot of sense which was you know if they're going to have that car on the show they're going to have to have three of them mm -hmm. you know uh and the more I thought about it, it's like, yeah, I guess if she's got a shitty car, why would she have a shitty classic car? Why wouldn't okay. she just have a shitty car like I've got, sure. you know? Uh, I, I drive a Honda Civic, you know? Um, so, you know, I was I was very pleased with that stuff. And the little changes, like the tape that gets stuck in the tape deck, I was like, that's I, a great idea. That, I was just going to bring that up because that remi it, it, it reminds me, so Ben in the, sh in the, in the show, unlike the comic, there is this, there's a mixtape that is stuck in the old tape deck that can't be ejected, but she will hit a bump and a song will come up that perfectly punctuates the moment of that moment in the plot. It was a little bit like the um, the haunted tape in Good Omens um, that's in the demon's car that only plays Queen's greatest hits, but always huh. seems to be perfect for the moment and that, that moment in the story. But, you know, it's a supernatural car. It had the same 
uh, tone and gravitas uh, in in Stumptown. I just love that. That was just sweet TV writing for me. Yeah. Yeah. Did you yeah, talk was... to Kobe about how she, I'm assuming that she discovered the comic book or someone brought it to her and said, you should play this part because she had a hand in producing the show as well. Correct. I don't exactly know how she came okay. along. Uh, okay. What happened was pretty interesting though. Like, you know, it had been, 10 years or more after Greg and I started the, the thing that we got any interest that I was aware of. Um, you know, like I say, there had been these moments that he had passed on, but I don't think they were all that serious anyway. Okay. Um, so Greg contacts me at one point and says, Hey, just so you know, there's a little bit of interest in, in Stumptown. And for once in my life, I was an adult. And I said, you know, oh, that's great. And went, yeah, I know how this game's played. I'm not going to get all that excited. And then it was, hey, they're optioning the series. I'm like, well, that's awesome. That means some money's coming. Probably won't get made. Uh, then it's, hey, we're going to shoot a pilot. And I'm like, well, there's a million pilots, never get picked up. And it's going to feature this actress. And I honestly, I'm not being polite here. I can't remember who she was <laughs> because she was someone I had never heard of. Um, I think maybe she was on Orange is the New Black. And she just was not the decks that I co-created, you know, like she just was a different person like if i remember correctly she might have been sort of a persian descent or something like that obviously i don't have any problem with that but it's just a different thing than who i drew you know if they had cast uh the queen's gambit girl i would have also been like well that's different than what i did maybe it'll be great um and that was kind of what i was thinking here like ah, all right and then like two days pass and they're like hey wait a minute kobe smolders wants to do it I was like, Kobe Smulders, like the, that lady that I like in the Marvel movies, you know? <laughs> and I was like, Ooh, she kind of looks like her. This could work. This could... And so she was brought in late, mm. but as part of the deal, she was also made an executive producer. Okay. Uh, All right. So that's kind of how that happened. All but right. from what I understand, she and her husband are big comic fans. So I don't know if they knew it before or not. So um, tell us about getting um, uh, connecting with Garth Stein and 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 working on uh, the Cloven uh, set here in Seattle. Well, uh, that came about weirdly, actually, sort of because of uh, music, in a sense. Huh. Um, I just made a connection I never made before. <laughs> that weird look on my face. I just went, hey, wait a second. A lot of firsts um, here on the show. <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, Bill Barr resigning and the Electoral College. <laughs> fuck all that shit. <laughs> you know, we're making real news here. Um, uh, years and years ago, my band was playing at Jules Mays, which was the oldest bar in Seattle, which is now closed. Um, Jules Mays is in Georgetown, which is just up the street from the Fantagraphics store. Right. Now, of course, I was buying comics all this time, 
but I don't think at that point that I'd been to the Fantagraphics store. I think it had, or if I had, not many times, it was still new. Uh, I and Aaron Huffman mm. on my shirt, Aaron was the art director of The Stranger and also a big comics nerd. Um, we went down there, we met this guy, Larry, and I used to go, and that's Larry Reed, who's, by the way, a major part of Seattle rock history. He's one of those, mm. he's kind of a Forrest Gump of, of comics and music in Seattle. Um, so I started going to the Fanographic store every month. They would have these parties at the Art Walk, and I became friends with Larry, and I became friends with uh, Eric Reynolds. Eric Reynolds had a band. My band played with his band at a place called The Mix in Georgetown. We got to be closer and just like, we just got on very well, like just liked each other. So flash forward to now, a couple of years ago, um, Garth, who wrote The Art of Racing in the Rain, right. um, had a an office up the street from the Fanographics store. Hmm. So he would go in there periodically and just look around, I guess. And he had written this novel uh, called The Cloven, which had been based on a short story that he'd written. And his wife and he kind of came to the realization that they didn't think it worked very well as a novel. But then he had the idea that maybe it would work as a graphic novel. Mm -hmm. So he walked down the street to the Fantagraphics store and Larry, if I understand the story correctly, Larry said, you should talk to Eric. Uh, Garth and Eric meet and they talk for a while. And then at the end of that, Eric goes, you know who you should talk to? This guy, Matt. And I'm not sure why he thought of me exactly, but our sensibilities line up. So then Garth and I get, Eric sends me an email and he says, hey, I want you to talk to this guy. He's a novelist. He has a novel he wants to make into a graphic novel. And my first thought is, mm, that's those can be suicide missions. Um, there's a lot of times where somebody's like, you know, oh, it's, yeah, I'll just make it to a graphic novel. What's, what's the big deal? That's easy, right? You know, and so that's sort of what I was anticipating. Mm -hmm. But, you know, worth worth talking to this guy. So we talk and we talked for like two and a half, three hours. And it was, as you've seen in this thing, I can go on and on and on. And it's very discursive and uh, tangent filled conversation, like every conversation we've had since. And it was just clear, like right away, it was like, this is going to work. Mm -hmm. And what was greatest about it was that, you know, Garth sold a lot of books with The Art of Racing in the Rain. I, he has now sold over four and a half million copies of that book. Um, so he could be one of those guys that throws his weight around and goes, look, I'm a big time author. But instead, what he does is he doesn't feel like he has anything to prove or he doesn't demonstrate that he feels like he has anything to prove. And so as we started to work on the thing, he was very much like, I don't know how to make comic books. How do we make it? Mm -hmm. And I would say, well, okay, so there's these things, you know, you can't have five actions in one panel. You can't say she comes in the door, the phone is ringing, she walks to the door and it opens the refrigerator and answers the door and puts her keys on the table in one panel. So 
what happened was the the novel got totally reshaped. Hmm. Um, I certainly didn't write any of it, but in our conversations, it, we would just we would just keep talking and like they would uh, spark this idea or that idea, and he would go off and do another rewrite on the comic script. And the way we work is he doesn't break it down into pages or panels. He writes it essentially like a film script. And I go, I think this is this scene is probably 12 pages and I'm going to put a double page spread and maybe I'll put more than a double page spread. Maybe it'll be bigger than that. And so I'm totally in control. It's more like I'm directing it than drawing it, you know, which has made it the most pleasurable experience of my uh, career. What kind of research have you done as far as environmental? Um, because that's, that's that's one of the beautiful standout things about this book, um, are like the you know the, the cloven goat person parkour um, across the the cement structures at the the convention center and mm -hmm. under the um, the I five uh, and uh, the jungle area underneath the I five and and along the pier and stuff like that. Those are all just really really stunning. I've been to those places and I know just how well you have captured them, but how much time did you spend um, making visual choices about those environments? Uh, hmm, that's tough to answer. A lot and not much at the okay. same time. Um, <laughs> like in the case of Stumptown, the way I approached it was essentially like I was shooting a movie. And mm -hmm. so I, I, location scouted everything heavily uh and in the case of the car chase issue that's actually completely accurate you can drive the car chase mm -hmm. um now in that case i didn't do most of the the scouting work for the car chase but the point being that all that stuff was really important to me on Stumptown. um there's a movie called The Thing Called Love. It's uh, one of River Phoenix's last movies, set mm -hmm. in Nashville. And there are things where like Samantha Mathis's character is rolling into town on the bus, you know, with her guitar. She's going to be a country singer. And she looks out the window and she passes the Parthenon, which is this uh, kind of tourist structure in Nashville. And then she looks out the window and she sees another thing, which is like seven miles away from the Parthenon. And she sees another thing that's like kind of next door to the Parthenon. And it's like, it's all goofy. And so if you're a Nashvillian, you're immediately like, this movie sucks. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Bullshit. Yeah. Uh, so in the case of Stumptown, I was like, all right, I'm going to get this right. And in, I got it right in almost every case. There's one thing that nobody's ever pointed out. I actually did see an argument on the, on the internet one time about if she got shot under the St. John's bridge, why would they take her to whatever the hospital <laughs> was? I can't remember. Um, but the thing that, that nobody caught was there's this scene where she screeches up in front of the Heathman hotel and hops out of the car. And I had researched that, but I had not been to the Heathman hotel. And so I didn't realize that it's a one way street going the other way <laughs> in front of it. Well, so. it, it's not like the, um, the, the, the collapsible time alleys in the fabulous Baker Boys, where he walks into an alley on on Pike and comes out at uh, um, you know comes out miles and miles away at the market. You know, 
You know, I love the Fabulous Baker Boys, and yet I don't think I've seen it since I've lived in Seattle, which is almost 20 years now. Opening montage, and he's, you know, he's passing, you know, and of course it was shot back. Ben, when was that shot? 80, remember? Mid-80s, like probably 88, yeah. something like that. So it's, it's nothing is, is quite the same, but there are enough landmarks that you, you know, uh, a local will go, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, he disappears yeah. in one place and he shows up miles away. Singles, um, well, singles has a lot of that too and i always yes. always get pulled oh, yeah. out of a movie if it's set in seattle when there are like obvious vancouver landmarks mm-hmm. and because <laughs> right. everything's shot in vancouver so right like that scene in front of the st louis arch um <laughs> yeah well i didn't answer your question about cloven though the answer to the cloven question is since i've lived here for 20 years now or nearly 20 years um I have been most of these places. So, so I kind of already knew uh, in this case, in the case of Stumptown, I had to go looking like when Greg would say she lives in this part of the city, I'd have to go find it. And then I took a ton of pictures and I'd see, Oh, like there's a thing like her house is in front of this big uh, uh, water tower. Well, that's, that house is not the house that's there because that's the house that I built in SketchUp. But I used to know exactly where her house is, you mm. know, like, mm-hmm. but in the case of Stumptown, like where it's, uh, I'm sorry, in the case of the Cloven, you know, obviously I know Freeway Park by the convention center. Uh, I know all that sort of under Spokane street and stuff like at the edges of the jungle uh, my girlfriend and I actually had gone down there and taken some some nude photos under the freeway, not realizing that we were in one of the most dangerous places in the whole planet. <laughs> uh, and like, you know, God knows what we dodged. Um, but it's very important to me that that locations feel not only feel real, but that they influence the scene. Mm-hmm. Like it, it shouldn't just be right. It should have a reason that it's right. Yeah. And uh, there's a, Seattle's got a cool sense of character. It's both very open because it's surrounded by water and kind of oppressive, especially under the bridges. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously when there are these, you know, when it's heavily raining, we haven't really done a rain scene yet. Um, but we will. Um, and in the second volume, like we go, we go out into the North Cascade Highway, mm-hmm. and it, it it expands further out of the city. So, and we're looking at something really interesting with uh, the Cloven graph because it's going to be a graphic novel series, um, uh, right. released hardbound. Ben, do you have your copy there? I do. You know, in fact, I've been leafing through it to look at the uh, yeah. look at the uh, uh, the 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 landscapes. And I remember because I, I, you know, I've, you know, I've, I've lived in, I've, I grew up in the Northwest, but I've been in Seattle since '94, and um, and it's always, it's always a, a, a fun thing to, to, to read a, you know, read a book and see familiar landmarks, you know, and because it, it, it uh, yeah, because like the, you, you uh, draw the Bread of Life Mission down there at the uh, in Pioneer Square. It's like, oh yeah, I, I know that. So you know, you, you get, I think. I don't know, in my case, at least, a little bit more invested in this in the storytelling. That's we- one of the great things about working with Garth is that uh, I don't remember whether he set that at the bread of life. I don't think that he did, 
Uh, but the first time I came to Seattle, um, I got caught in a non-Seattle rainstorm. I got caught in a serious downpour. Obviously, we live here. We know that that's not really how it rains in Seattle. In right. Seattle, it's just damp all the time. Uh, but this was like a rainstorm. And I was down there. I was at the bookstore, you know, Elliott Bay when it was down there. And I just remember being in this super nasty rainstorm, you know, water running all down Pioneer Square streets and like, you know, the swishing of cars as they're going past. And I, I remember like looking at the bread of life sign with the come unto me thing, you know, on the neon in the rain and being like, that's fucking cool. <laughs> and then, you know, 17 years later or whatever, I'm like, yeah, I'll draw the bread of life. Finally. Was the, now was Garth's original um, novel for the Cloven set in Seattle or is that something that you brought to it? No, it was set here. Uh, Garth lives, uh, I actually can't remember the Mount Baker. He lives in the Mount okay. Baker. Neighborhood. Okay. Um, uh, so he had, he had written something for the Hugo house. Uh, which was some kind of uh, themed story thing that writers were supposed to write something about uh, transformation, beastly transformation, something like that. And so he'd written this short story about this goat boy um, and then expanded that into the novel. So Seattle was always baked into the idea. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. And what we're noticing I'm noticing a trend uh, away from floppy individual comics. This is the second um, hardbound book series or hardbound graphic novel series that we've talked about on the podcast, the previous being um, the November series that uh, uh, we interviewed Kurt Ankeny, who's uh, doing hand lettering the whole thing. And that's um, mm -hmm. written by um, Matt, Rick, Fraction. Matt Fraction. Thank you. I was going to yep. say the wrong name. Thank you for saving me. <laughs> Um, yeah, but it's like, you know, it's, a, it's an ongoing series. It's not floppy. It's going to be, you know, right. shell format books. Is that, was that something that you um, decided on when you set up the contract with Fanagraphics or how did you, how did you determine it wasn't going to be a monthly thing? A monthly no, we did this, we did this in a very unusual way. Um, we did it without a publisher. And though Eric had put us together it was just a, hey, you should talk to my friend Matt about this. It wasn't a, hey, you do this with Matt and we'll publish it. So there was always, we were always kind of like, well, who are we going to get to publish it? What are we going to do? You know, there was some, some talk of doing it as a floppy series, perhaps with Image. Not that we ever spoke to Image about it, but we considered the idea. And it just kind of didn't make a lot of sense to do it that way. Um, for one thing, one of the great deals with doing it the way we're doing it is we don't have to worry about ending an issue. So if I decide that this bicycle chase scene should be 12 pages long, we don't go, well, shit, if it's 12 pages, that means we only got 10 pages of real estate for the rest of the comic or eight pages now. Uh, we just go, okay, well, then it takes that long, you know, whatever. Um, so we just, 
we didn't exactly know how we were going to format it, but we knew, yeah, probably it's just going to be standalone graphic novels. And actually, originally, um, this, guys, this is hard to remember. The story that Garth originally presented to me was basically books one and two. They've changed so much since then. That's why I'm having trouble kind of keeping it straight. But I was like, if we do all this, this is 250 pages or something. We're going to have to charge $70 per book to make any money. (laughs) Um, So we were like, okay, well then let's split it up. And now it's, you know, he, Garth's full of energy. So he's like, we have three books planned. The fourth one, we're, we're still kind of like going, yeah, maybe there's a fourth. Maybe there's more. Who knows? Uh, the plan was that we were going to publish one every year, every July. This year, we were going to be guests at San Diego Comic-Con, and it was going to be the big release. Um, it was going to be great. You know, they were, they were paying for transportation. They were setting us up. It was going to be like stardom you know? Yes. yes. Uh, and obviously uh, the real world intervened. What also happened was I got what I'm pretty sure was COVID back really? right before it really was kind of identified in the U S uh, my girlfriend actually works at Providence, which is where the first uh, U S case was identified. Although now we're uh, apparently there were some in LA and so forth a month before but I got really, my stepson got really sick with the flu, we thought. And I was like two and a half weeks into it. I was like, you're still sick. I was actually kind of making fun of him. Like, you know, come on, you know? Uh, And then I got sick. And what I thought I got was just the flu, but it was a weird flu. And I never lost my sense of taste or smell, but I remember there being like, uh, well, let me back up slightly. I have a friend who has two places that he lives. He lives uh, part of the time in Canada in a town called Fernie. And he lives the other part of the time over uh, in Langley on Woodby Island. I actually, I live basically right on the border of Muckleteo and Everett. So I'm real close to the ferry to Woodby Island. His name is Clyde. Clyde was in Fernie when I got sick and was going to be there for quite a while. So I was able to just go stay at his place mm. and isolate mm-hmm. on Whitby Island. So I'm there and, you know, I'm like, man, I'm sick as shit, but I'm just going to use this time to watch movies and read and I'm going to take it easy. And I couldn't read because my eyes would dart like if, if this is a paragraph, mm-hmm. you know, they would go bink, 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 bink. I couldn't That's keep my weird. eyes. In. Yeah, it was really strange. I've never experienced that. And it was happening all the time. Like, and it was exhausting. You know, I was super exhausted the whole time. And I was like, this is the weirdest flu I've ever had. But <laughs> whatever. Like I say, about a three weeks later was when they're like, COVID, it's this thing it's not just happening in china it's here 
uh, I don't have health insurance, so I didn't go to the doctor. I never got checked out. But uh, I've spent basically until about three weeks ago with this brain fog. Like, hmm. which for a long time, I was like, you're just being ridiculous. You're just being lazy. You're just, you know, making excuses. But I keep seeing more and more reports of people experiencing this. And I talked to some people on Twitter about it, too. One guy was like, yeah, I forgot how to do my job, which is exactly how I felt. Like suddenly drawing comics was really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. um, it was like. Like if I said to you, uh, you know, OK, tell me the year that your mother was born and the year that your father was born. Now tell me how old you were, how old they were when you were born. The little bit of math that you have to do with that, I couldn't do it. That would just be too much. Mm -hmm. And it would mm. be like, it, it's not like I'd you know, pass out from the exertion, but I'd just be like, I, I can't think, I'm not gonna waste my time thinking about that shit right now. You know, you're like, <laughs> I don't need to do that. And I, I spent nine months feeling like that. It's really a weird thing. Damn. So yeah, I wish it was just the flu, but yeah. it was, whatever it was, was really strange. So the point of that story is to say that the plan of having this book done by the end of 2020 just went totally out the window. Mm. I'm way far behind. I've got stuff done, you know, I've got pages right here. Cool. But, uh, you know, but it's going to take quite a while. Uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, I'm just so grateful for all the things you've shared with us. But I don't want to get I don't want to get away without talking about your extraordinary colors that you're doing on this. Oh, which are like, you know, that's a Ben Lawrence, can you hold up the the, the book? I'm yeah. sorry, you're my visual aid guy. Now. I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna ask uh, because uh, you're credited as uh, the drawer. It's drawn by Matthew Southworth, whereas right. normally on comics, I see that the you you you're typically called an artist. Is was this a very specific credit that you wanted? <laughs> No, I, you know, we talked about the credit um, and, you know, we discussed like how to, how to deal with it, whether it should say just by Garth and Matt. Um, we talked about how it, it's like, I'm not an illustrator, but I don't remember where drawn came from. I don't think that that was my suggestion, but it might've been. Uh, but I, I like it better than written by Garth Stein, illustrated by Matthew Southworth. Something about drawn by sounds more like, yeah, look, I made this thing. You know, like, let's not pretend it's a big shot thing. I made this thing with some markers and some paper. Yeah, and it, it's, it's a lot of like, I, I, do, I do appreciate the art style. It's very... Uh, the panels can be very um, like highly contrasty and there's a lot of, you know, what appear to be some primary colors on the pages is this spread, especially. And so uh, it's, it's, it's very striking. Thank you. Yeah. It's all colored uh, either with watercolors or with markers. Like none of it was done digitally. It's all on paper. Um, I would, I would draw the pages, you know, black and white, um, uh, 
just regular ink. In this case, like I've kind of streamlined my process. So I'm using uh, this one particular uh, marker pen, which is working well for me finally. Like I finally smarted up and was like, why don't I reduce the number of options all the time? But anyway, so I'll do it in black and white and then we'll photocopy it onto Bristol board because uh, toner is basically just melted plastic. Mm -hmm. So then you can take these alcohol markers into it and it won't smear. If I took alcohol markers to that, it would just turn to a muddy mess. Gotcha. So, so, so there's kind of two pieces of original art for every page. Cool. So how are you feeling now? Is your brain fog kind of dissipated? Do you feel um, like your energy's back the way it was prior to, to being ill? Or are you still kind of like inching your way along? Uh, both. What I've learned is it's, it's much, it's, well, first of all, I'd say I'm 85 to 90% back to normal. Um, but what was very frustrating and very difficult about the year was I'd be, you know, whatever, just kind of sleeping late and knocked out and, and depressed, but not for the right reasons. <laughs> I don't know what that means exactly, but you know, like I would just feel depleted, mm -hmm. but I wasn't, it wasn't emotional exactly, except that I couldn't work. Like when I can't get my work done, it starts doing stuff to me mentally messes yeah. with me and after six months of that you start to go crazy sure um i started to genuinely wonder if i was like if i needed to get on antidepressants or something uh but then all of a sudden i'd be like it's lifted you know you wake up one morning and you feel great and you're like oh thank god and then you work for a couple of days and you're like it's going great and then and then you yeah. And then it's like, oh, no, that was, you know, that was just the the last gasp before I finally completely shut down. I've completely lost it. Uh, I can't draw anymore. I can't even think I'm just old. I also, by the way, not to get into a litany of of ailments, I'm actually not a whiner about this kind of stuff, but this <laughs> really, really had a big effect. I also injured my right arm and uh I don't know what I did to it, but I couldn't even hold a jar of pickles. That was too heavy. My arm would start to vibrate. Mm -hmm. And so even when I could get the energy and get my thoughts right, I couldn't really work. So anyway, that's better now. That's fine. I did my first push-ups in forever today and was like, yeah, I, I get my amazing body back. Uh <laughs> Um, so, you know, it's, everything's definitely on the upswing. A lot of the sort of psychic toll of the year is, is lessened partially by the election. Right. Um, yeah, totally. You know, just aside from my intense hatred of Donald Trump, just the idea that we're not going to have four more years like these past four that's that was just a big thing like i you know regardless of who got elected if marco rubio had gotten elected <laughs> that would have been a relief to me um because it's just been so relentlessly dramatic 
And I'm really hoping that we finally just have a normal-ish time where I don't have to wake up in a panic. Every yeah, day, you know? I'm, I'm looking forward to not, not thinking about who the president is anymore. Um, exactly yeah is uh uh we, we've spoken a lot about how this year was kind of a wash is there anything you got coming out that we can promote any uh anything that uh we want to push our uh listeners and our viewers to to check out coming up i guess not really um you know the only really the one thing that we didn't talk about was you know we talked about Stumptown being canceled Stumptown was actually picked up for a second season that's right but because of covid it got yeah. re-canceled <laughs> <laughs> so uh it was a weird thing it was like ah well at least we got this hooray we made yeah. it through. and then they're like womp, womp. uh uh no i'd I, what what we've got coming up is we have the second volume of the of the cloven which I couldn't tell you when that's going to be ready, but sometime next year. Gotcha. Um, and I'm finally writing and recording music again. So what I'll do with that, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. It's This is part of the psychic weirdness of the year. Like, mm -hmm. if I do start recording, will there be any place to play? Yeah. Will people want to go see bands, you know, like in the new world, yeah. uh, all of that stuff. Will the Cinerama ever reopen? You know, all these, like all the things that we used to not necessarily take for granted. Every time I went to the Cinerama, I was like filled with gratitude that I lived in Seattle. Uh, but who knows what the world's going to be like. And I hate to, you know, turn this into some suddenly, you know, apocalyptic discussion, but it's changed a lot of how I look at the future of my work and what I'm trying to do and who I'm actually going to be talking to. I, you know, I watched a little of your episode about uh, Comics Dungeon closing, you know, all these things that like, of course, Com Comics Dungeon was the first comic store I shopped in when I moved to Seattle. Of course, Comics Dungeon will be there. Well, no. And we thought that too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, what's it going to look like? Is there going to be any advantage to living in a cool city anymore? Or is it, are we all just going to be working from home and it doesn't matter where you live because you don't see anybody anyway, the way it's been the past nine months? Yeah. And if so, what will that make art? Will it be a, you know, like I feel I'm going off now, but uh, like the only contact I've really had for months, aside from with my girlfriend and her stepson and some kind of family members and Clyde, who lives over on the island, uh, is with people on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And I'm tired of Twitter. <laughs> I like the people on Twitter, but I'm tired of that. I'm tired of that bar you know, going to that bar to meet those people. I want to go to a different bar. Totally. It's true. Uh, so what happens if that's the only bar that's open, right. <laughs> you know, like for the rest of the, you know, for next year, I drove through Ballard today and it was weird. I was like, Oh, this, I don't know if you've been up Ballard Avenue in the past few months, but yeah, 
you know, it's all half of it's boarded up. And then the other half, they've like built all these kind of outdoor dining things. It was already impossible to park in Ballard. <laughs> so now if you are adventurous enough to go get, you know, a burger at someplace on Ballard Avenue, which I'd love to do, where in the fuck are you going to park? Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think that that's going to ripple out through the whole world. You know, like, well, we can only have 25 people in here at a time. So, and then people are just going to go, well, I don't feel like standing outside in the rain waiting for them to let me in to Bed Bath & Beyond. I'll just order online. And then we're screwed. Yeah. Well, I've had a number of conversations with people about, even before before the pandemic, it was about, you know, what, when did Seattle die for you? And there's like uh -huh. these various benchmarks for people, like, you know, when the hurricane closed or when, you know, the, the King Cat Theater uh, closed or whatever, when Amazon came, you know, that kind of thing. But the pandemic, mm -hmm. I feel, is just like, accelerated everything so much and you're right the, the 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 what makes the city great is has has been taken away from us like my home base is annex theater this you know fringe theater on capitol hill and who knows when we're going to be able to have an audience and uh, again and who knows when people are going to want to go see theater again right. well exactly yeah that's the that for me is the biggest thing is like <laughs> well i went to sonic boom today Sonic Boom Records for those of you who don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And they have these, they have these little giveaway buttons that say, uh, keep music live. Um, and I, I have never wanted to see a band live so bad in my life as I do right now. And <laughs> if they suck even better, like I want to go see shitty bands with a bunch of people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> And like, we'll all stand around and not like the band and that'll be great. And then we'll be shocked when some awesome band comes on and you're like, who the fuck is that? <laughs> uh, like that's something that you don't get when, when everything's on demand, yeah. you know, like, and you don't have the experience of, I this is, I'm going all over the place. This is why I talked to Garth for three hours at a time. I remember going to see Toy Story 2. I think it was on Thanksgiving with my best friend, Matt, in New York. And I'm sure you've both seen Toy Story 2, right? You remember the, the scene when... <laughs> I'm going to get choked up talking about it. When Jesse has her When Somebody Loved Me song, where she's left by the side of the road in a cardboard box... I remember looking over at Matt, this beautiful Randy Newman song, sung by Sarah McLaughlin, and we were tears were streaming <laughs> down our faces. Two grown men watching Toy Story, and it that like that's the that's the great thing about being in a place with somebody is like going, oh shit, somebody's gonna see me having this experience, and then you look over and they're having it too, you know, like. That's what I want. Yeah. So hopefully it's not over. I don't think it's possible for it to be over. No. I mean, we all have access to porn and yet we still want to sleep with actual human beings. So <laughs> that's one way to put it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> human, human, human beings are resilient. And so I think it'll, it'll be a matter of time. Uh, Matt, we really appreciate, appreciate you spending so much time with us. Um, if pleasure. people want to, 
Yeah, if people want to check you out, uh, you know, you have a Twitter. Do you have an Instagram? Do you? How do people connect with you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook, at least for the time being. I'm. Uh, I have an Instagram account that I've actually never used, uh, but I also have a website. I know nobody has websites anymore, <laughs> but I've got one. Um, and there's some music on there. If you're curious about the music, there's some. Yeah some comic stuff on there, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, you know, this year, maybe it might be time to do more with the website. At the moment, it's just kind of a brochure. Like if you wanted to buy a Matt Southworth, you go to Matt <laughs> South, MatthewSouthworth.net and, you know, check out all the features. All right. Check them out at MatthewSouthworth.net. Matt, Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Yeah, uh, the Perfect Bound Podcast is brought to you by The Panel Jumper. See everything Cole Hornaday and I do at thepaneljumper.com. And send us an email, perfectboundpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcast. I don't care. Uh, perfectboundpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again, Matt. And we will see you all next time. <laughs>